Hello, listeners. I would like to welcome you all to another episode of Are You Really Living? Today's guest is Eliana. Uh, welcome, Eliana. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for coming on. And uh, I'm looking forward to have this wonderful conversation with you about various topics today. So let's just jump into it. You know, you are a supervisor at a homeless shelter. Um, I'm actually the administrator at the center. So I oversee pretty much the whole program, um, facilities, a portion of that. So I just oversee like the day-to-day operations of the um, center and make sure that clinically the services that were offered is offered in the manner that is satisfactory and meet our uh, funders' requirements. Now, can you give us a quick overview of the services that the homeless shelter what are some of the per- services that are provided? Uh, well, the uh, center offers a wide array of services. So we are considered to be the largest uh, nonprofit uh, in South Florida that provides comprehensive services to those that are homeless. So we have case management, behavioral health, supported employment, um, medical services. We have two outreach teams that provide uh, prevention services as well as medical services in the community. We also offer our day respite services. Um, it's a wide array of services um, for anyone that's coming into the homeless system that are, that's seeking assistance. It's really a one-stop shop. And if your goal is to get yourself back together, we provide everything um, to help you do that. We also have a psychiatrist that provides um, med management, psychiatric evaluation. So it's it's very, very comprehensive. And one of the things I failed to mention is the name of the homeless shelter that you work for. Yes, I'm very proud to be an employee at Bar Partnership. Bar Partnership. Now, yeah. how do you work with other organizations uh, to support people that are experiencing homelessness? Well, that's a really good question. And that I think is probably one of the linchpins in helping clients transition from being homeless to back to being stabilized. Um, Because nothing happens in silo. It's really the partnership that we have with the other providers in the community that helps us to be able to succeed and help our clients achieve their goals. So we work with and like the law enforcement, um, the hospitals, um, other nonprofits, um, Everyone that you can think of in terms of services that really wrap around an individual, we partner with them or we try to seek out opportunities or different ways to engage the public because they help us. And I I would be remiss if I didn't mention the um, service that the donors and the volunteers contribute to the mission because they help to, you know, come in, provide that in-kind donation, helping our clients. But also it's really good because they uh, spread the word. Okay. Do you work with um, high school or colleges in terms of if uh, students are seeking community service or community service hours, can they contact your um, organization to come help? Yes, we have an RD department that manages all of that, and that's part of our community engagement. So we uh, frequently have high school students come out, college students come out. Um, We have couple of years ago, we had Boy Scouts out. They were helping to kind of like clean uh, clean up the perimeter. Um, So there's different tasks. It's really based on the individual's age in terms of what we can help uh, have them uh, help with. But we have individuals that come and help with like feeding or packaging goods or doing different things. And if you're not able to come on site, one of the other things that happen is we have some high school that will do like a food drive um, or a clothes drive. So there's many different ways in which high schools, um, whether you're a youth or you're a young adult or you're someone that's a little bit older, there's many ways in which you can, uh, you can contribute. What, what have you seen in terms of 
Is there a statistic number that you saw prior to COVID and then after COVID in terms of people going into the um, homeless uh, assistant program? Yeah, definitely. Because I think COVID had um, a very devastating effect on many different levels with a lot of people, primarily with those that are experiencing homelessness. We did see an increase in the numbers that are um, living on the streets or living in places not meant for human habitation. We've seen an increase in families um, that are um, homeless. And there are many, many barriers that families face trying to get housed because one of the things that we have to consider is their rental history, some of the barriers that they may face. Um, with, you know, whether they have um, any type of legal entanglements that, you know, they're addressing or have had in their past. Um, their family size plays a big role in that, um, their um, income. So we've noticed an increase in families and we get that information from the school board as well. But in addition to that, the singles, males and females, we've all, also seen an intake in the number, um, an uptake in the number of individuals that are on the street and coming into the shelter. For somebody that's listening right now that you know, probably drive bys every day and see somebody that's homeless mm -hmm. and they don't understand the factors that someone can actually become homeless. Can you dive into it? It's not a choice that somebody becomes homeless. Uh, can you give us an example or two in terms of what you've seen that pushes someone or people to become homeless? Definitely. I think um, being homeless um, it's not a choice that I think any person would make. Um, sometimes life just has circumstances. And, you know, there's a saying that many of us are a paycheck away from being homeless. I can tell you, in my experience, I've seen individuals come into the program that were medical resident students, that were um, had their own company, that um, were professors at, you know, reputable uh, universities. So it, there isn't a... Um, a profile for someone that is homeless or how you would define a homeless person. I think society has a way of stigmatizing or um, being very biased in their thought in terms of what a homeless person looks like, right? Because you think right. about a disheveled person, the person that's on the corner, but truth be told, homelessness or, um, you know, circumstances can happen to any one of any one of us. And many of the reasons that client, many of the uh, reasons or things that clients attribute their homelessness to, a lot of it is family, some of it is substance use, a lot of it is mental health. So it's not just, okay, one thing, there's many, many circumstances that can contribute to that. Uh, but at the same time, can you also provide a success story, somebody that yes. went through your program? And what is that person doing now? Yes. And I can actually, you know, today um, I had two emails that went out um, about individuals that were able to successfully transition out of the program. And, you know, this um, gentleman had been in the program for several months and he was able to get his key and move into his unit. But it took a lot of tenacity. It took a lot of um, motivation on our part with working with a client. Um, it took him wanting to transition his life. And he had been dealing with homelessness for three plus years. And, you know, the fact that we were able to offer the services to him to help him to stabilize and also help him with housing lead, employment lead, that really helped to put him back on, you know, the, the step or the right track to being able to establish his um, own home. The other um, individual that we saw transition out, um, she was actually in the shelter. She was there with her partner and she was able to transition out into her own permanent supportive housing program. And you know, being in that program, she doesn't have to worry about income or having um, a rental income that she has to stress about because with that program, 
the only thing she has to contribute is 30% of her income. And as long mm -hmm. as she's able to abide by the rules and obligation, uh, the rules of that program and abide by the rules, she'll be in that program as long as, you know, she's here on this earth. And those are the things that make me go to work every single day. Those are the stories and the instances where it just makes you want to continue to do what you're doing. Yes, we're going to have, you know, certain outcomes that we may not be able to meet, but it's seeing those little successes. And even if an individual doesn't move into housing, them being able to gain insight into some of their issues and the things that have crippled them for years, that's a win. That's a win because a lot of times the denial is there and they're not attentive to that or they don't want to... Um, they don't want to face that. So being able to kind of help them transition from completely being in that pre-contemplative state and then transitioning to, okay, I'm going to, okay, I have a contemplative and then moving into, um, you know, action and maintenance. That's a win. Even if the housing isn't something that they're able to get, because I can work with that. I can work with someone that is motivated. I can work with someone that says, you know what? I do have an issue with X, Y, and Z. I would like to have that addressed. Do you, when somebody walks in the door and they are seeking your assistant, do you check W-2s or what do you check or what what are the factors that comes into play to say this person will be able to admit it to your program? Uh, well, to be admitted into our program, individuals have to go through the, um, they have to go through the coordinated entry process. So our facility isn't a walk-up facility. So not, you know, you can't just walk up to the, um, to the gate and say, I want to have a, a bed here. They have to go through that coordinated entry process and that's through task force. Once they get that referral, they can then come, they'll get a referral to come to our center. And then once they're there, there's no requirement for them to produce anything. We're a low barrier shelter, so we don't have a criteria. So you don't have to have a job. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have any, there's no criteria. The only thing is we do not service anyone that's registered as a sex offender. Um, that is the only limit that we have because of funding source and, you know, because of um, children that we have, families that we service, but there's no criteria or eligibility um, for them to get into the program, except for the things that I mentioned. Do you see mental health playing a big, big role in terms of people being homeless? Absolutely. I mean, as a licensed clinician, if I if I didn't say yes, <laughs> mm -hmm. I think my I think my peers and my colleagues would say what? Absolutely, yes, 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 yes. Hands down, yes, yes. I did mention that you do have mental health people on staff to assist. Yeah. Correct. Okay. To assist with the clients. What happened if a client is not compliant to the rules? Well, there are some cardinal rules that um, obviously for safety reason, we cannot tolerate. So obviously if you're coming into the program and we do our assessment and there's any kind of threat of suicidal, homicidal, anything like that, that really um, impacts the safety of the other clients or the staff that's there. That's something that you know, if we're not able to address it and you're not willing to address, then obviously you cannot partake in the program because that is a safety risk. But in regards to any other rules, we really, at the end of the day, like I said, individuals don't choose to be homeless, right? So we're kind of like the last stop. So our mission and our goal is to really help clients that want to work the program, work the program. As long as you're demonstrating an effort and you're able to abide by the rules, we're able to work with you. But the the safety, we cannot, we cannot um, turn a blind eye to that. Um, we have to be very cognizant of the population that we're serving. And like I said, mental health is a huge, huge um, 
a factor in in many of those instances. We've assessed people that have come into the program and instantly, you know, they have said, I want to kill her. I want to kill him. I want to kill myself. And at that moment, either myself or the other licensed clinician will enact a Baker Act um, or contact our colleagues, um, law enforcement for transport, and that individual is sent to have uh, to get the assistance that they need. But that's the number one thing. It's safety. Ultimately, it's safety. And how long can a person stay in that program? I'm assuming it's not a lifetime. No. Um, Is there a time frame? Um, it's not a time frame. We're an emergency shelter. So stressing the word emergency, right? You come mm-hmm. in, there, you have an emergency, we help you, we get you the services, connect, uh, connected to the services. Um, but we do have individuals and the time is different because everyone is different and everyone gain insight and become aware at different times. So um, I can't say that there's a fixed number, but what I will say is if you come into the program and you um, demonstrate that you're willing to work the program, we can work with you. If you come into the program and you demonstrate or you express no goals, um, no initiative, no motivation, then maybe at this given time, the program isn't meant for you because there are things that we're going to be assessing every week. We're going to assess your progress. And if every week from week one to week two, we're seeing the same thing, then we're going to say, okay, this is not the right program for you because we have expectations of you. And you mentioned assisting with placing uh, other your clients into housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the requirements? I, I, you mentioned the 30%. Do mm-hmm. you check to make sure they have a, a job and then you start that process? Uh, can you dive a little bit into that part? Yes. So from the minute the client um, come into the program and we start our intake, we immediately we're housing first. So our goal is to get them into housing. So we start that conversation since day one. Um, In terms of getting them prepped, when the clients come into the program, they go through a series of assessments. They have a case management assessment. They have a behavioral health assessment. They have a medical assessment um, that they do. So with those three assessments, what we do is we assess to see what are their preferences? What's their abilities? Do we have any health conditions to be concerned about? What's their skill set? What prior experience they may have? Any certification? What's their mental state? you know, what type of protective factors do they have? What type of risk factors they have? It's very comprehensive. Um, Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose of that is to really understand what makes you tick? What do you like? What are some things that's not going to work for you so that we can help you to customize a strategy or a plan that's going to work that you're going to be equally motivated to execute? What do you see as the biggest challenge? or opportunities facing the homeless assistant program? Um, I wouldn't say necessarily. I wouldn't be so specific in saying the, 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 the partnership. I would say the challenge that our clients are going to face. And okay. what I mean by that is the housing market, it's, Right now, it's very, very crazy. Um, you know, it's hard for any one of us to obtain housing, um, particularly here in Broward County. So cost of living has increased. Um, clients, some of the challenges that they face is the inability to really afford the rent. You know, when we're looking at one bedroom apartment that costs $1,200, you know, go back three years prior, that wasn't the case. So when we have our clients and, you know, they're some they're obtaining sometimes um uh, minimum wage uh, jobs, they're not going to be able to to maintain, to even obtain, much less maintain a unit that is 1200 or more. And that's just for one bedroom. Imagine mm-hmm. we work with families and they need multiple bedrooms. So I would say the challenge that I see 
for providers that are working with individuals that are um, experiencing homelessness is the housing market. It's the lack of affordable housing because there isn't enough of it. Um, one of the other things too that I would say is equally as important and a need, uh, mental health services. You know, some of the clients that come into the program they're not necessarily uh, suitable for that for the program. They may need to be in a residential uh, program, a residential mental health facility. Um, so that's something that also we need to have more availability of. If uh, Jeff Bezos, the billionaire <laughs> uh, owner of Amazon, were to be listening to us right now yeah. and he he thinks about donating, how do you go about donating to your um, organization? Um, if anyone is interested in contributing to the organization, they can simply call our number. Um, they can reach out to us by mail, um, and I can provide that number um, to you. Um, but they can definitely get in contact with our RD department. We have a function that's coming up on May 19th is the um, annual gala. We've raised a lot of funds during that um, that event. So we have many different opportunities and events that we host throughout the year for individuals to partake in, to donate, um, to tell other people. And um, it's really, you know, it's really, really fun. And it's really um, a mission and an effort that really, again, takes a collective effort. So, but Jeff, if you're listening and you want to donate, call the number 954-779-3990. <laughs> All right, Jeff Bezos, it's up to you now to make that donation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to switch uh, topic really quickly. Now okay. we're going to talk about your journey yes um what inspired you to get into that field um well i can tell you um as a young girl i've always dreamt of being an attorney all right i wanted to practice law because i really love um i have a passion for people working with people um i find that that's my that's my gift you know for lack of better words that's something that i've been able to do very well i have a very um great ability to join with people and to help them like relate to them and get them to talk to me. So I wanted to pursue family law because I saw an um I saw an opportunity to work with families, particularly families that were separating and really helping to highlight the interest the interest of the child and um just being cohesive for that matter. I took one psych class in high school and fell in love with psych and mm -hmm. I was like, oh well, this is interesting. I get to learn how what makes people tick. I'm like, this is even better. Okay. <laughs> so um, I went into college um, undergrad as a declared psych major. I didn't forget about law. I minored in law. So I have pretty much like an associate's in law and a bachelor's in psychology. And then from there, I continue to pursue um, more clinical. Um, but I still have a love for the law. So one of the things that's my career goal is to obtain my certification so I can work in the court system, working with families, um, almost like a mediator. So still okay. doing what I love, but being able to contribute in a different way. Perfect. So that's what landed me here. And I just, I, I love working with this population and people as a whole. And you are extremely fascinating. That's one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you in the podcast, because you are a mother and you're a mother of four. Yes. And so how are you able to navigate, <laughs> uh, you know, being a motherhood for four yes. and balance work? You know what, to be quite honest with you, I don't know if I would credit myself with having a balance because sometimes I, I I I question often, you know, am I is it 50 50? Is it, you know, 
am I am I really managing this well? But I would say that as a mother of four, and I have four very young children, I have four under six. Um, <laughs> yes, um, I would say one of the things that helps to keep that balance is my spouse. Um, he is phenomenal. Um, you know, we made a decision to have a large family because we both come from a, you know, good sized family. And it was something that we talked about. So I was very, um, I guess, strategic in that sense that I knew that having a large family would require a lot of work. So one of the things that my husband and I did when we first got together is we would set up um, uh, annual goals. So every year on our dating anniversary, we would sit down and say, what do we want to do for the next year? So we would plan out like, okay, do we want to buy a home? So we need to save X amount of dollars. Do we want to do this? So we would do that every anniversary. And you know, in our, in dating, one of the things that was really, really priority for us was to complete our education because we knew that we didn't want to have to deal with the struggles of managing school, a family, a career. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. <laughs> so we were able to, um, gratefully, you know, complete our education, um, start our career, get established in our career. And then we started our family. So I think planning a bit helped, but, I would say the number one thing would be having the same vision. Okay. Right. Having the same vision, um, being on the same page in terms of, you know, marriage, family, um, you know, what our goals are, what our aspirations are, having, having those conversations. And those are hard conversations to have, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it's, it can become very challenging. You're dealing with two different people, but we honestly did a lot of, um, a lot of communication to, to be able to, um, execute it. And it's a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. It's a lot of work, you know, working eight hours a day and then coming home and, you know, but like I said, my husband is phenomenal because he's able to flex his schedule. So he's able to, you know, pick up where I may not be able to take the girls or take the kids to practice. He's there to take them to practice. You know, if I, they have a medical appointment, then I can handle that if he's busy. So a lot of it is communication and trying to train our best to manage, you know, and we also have a very supportive family too. So all of those things definitely helps to make the journey of parenthood um, a lot easier or more manageable. That's, that's very inspirational and uh, kudos to you. Kudos to your <laughs> husband as well, because four, that's, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> now, how do you approach discipline? Discipline, yes. Okay, so we're both from the Caribbean. Um, so um, we approach discipline as such. We raise our children similar to how we were raised. Um, our parents, and I can speak for myself, my mother was, and my father, um, they didn't play that, you know? <laughs> okay, they understood. They, they didn't play that, you know? It, 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 they were very much, okay, this is what you're going to do. Um, you know, you respect your elders, um, this, this back and forth dialogue. We raise our children just like that. But I think one of the things that we've been able to incorporate over the years is also being able to empower our children and communicate with them, right? So we're very big on, you know, when they come home, how was school? And it's so important to ask those questions because I don't want them to come home and get lost in, you know, television or anything else. So how was school? Oh, there goes my my youngest. <laughs> yeah. So we ask questions. We ask a lot of questions, but it, it's really it's really being able to take what we've learned from our parents in terms of how we were raised and 
saying, okay, so this is what was really, really good about what our parents did, but here are some ways and some things that maybe we can do a little bit different, but I think our upbringing is the foundation of how we raise our children. How you how you do you deal with if uh, one of the kids uh, is a p- picky eater? What are oh, some well, of the strategies? Y- yeah. Um, so no, that we, fortunately we we do not have that. So one of the things that um, we did with all of them since they were you know able to um, eat, um, like you know starting off with like table like a uh, meals since they started to eating meals, we introduced them to things that we knew would benefit them. So fruits, vegetables. Um, I can, none of our children are picky eaters um, because the things that we ate growing up, those are the things that we provide to them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not, do you want chips or cookie or banana? No, here's a banana. That's what you're going to eat. I'm, I'm the parent um, you know, I'm grocery shopping, so I'm buying what you need to eat. So that's what you're going to eat. <laughs> I'm preparing the meal, so I'm cooking what you should be eating, you know? Understood. Yeah. So <laughs> like I said, the way that our parents raised us really is the foundation for how, for how we raise our children. But like I said, there are some things that from our childhood, we were able to say, this is what we think we can do a little bit better, um, having more information and just, you know, you you, I think every parent's um goal is for their child to be a better version of them right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so I know for myself growing up my my parents weren't like every day you come home it's a hug and it's a kiss and they weren't like that but I understand the emotional value that that holds so that's something that I do with my children you know it's Mm -hmm. always the affirmations always the kisses um you know it's it's those things because those things are important in terms of technology do you let them is there a time limit when it comes to using technology? And I know they are under six. Mm-hmm. What is the plan in terms of letting them have social media? Well, technology, that that's this is their generation, right? This is mm-hmm. what they're going to grow up doing. In, them, in like, terms of screen time. Right. So one of the things that um, we're really big on is controlling as much as we can, right? Because they're young. So again, we're the parents. So we set the tone, we establish the rules in the home. We we expose them to what we would like them to be exposed to. Um, so, you know, if they're going to have screen time, it's going to be, we're really big on educational programs. So if you're not going to learn something from that, then that's not something that we um, promote. You know, so if you want to watch TV, you're going to learn your ABCs, you're going to learn how to count, you're going to, you know, you're going to learn how to read. It's not just going to be, oh, I just want to watch cartoons. No, what are you gaining from that? Um, So the screen time that they have, it's, I would say, probably on a daily basis. The two oldest that are in school, um, they probably get maybe two hours a day, Mm -hmm. maybe. Because once they come home, once they come home from school, um, they go to their different activities and programs that they're involved in. So I would say max, maybe two hours, if that much. It's more important to fill their days with things that's going to nurture them and and help them. Sitting in on the couch and watching TV, that's not doing anything for them. You know, my husband will often, if they're not at a sport um sporting event or one of their um classes or something like that 
he'll take them in the backyard. He'll play soccer with them. Um, we'll go out there. We'll play, you know, tag. We'll hang out. It's more important for us to really teach them to be present, be present, be active. You know, we grew up in the Caribbean. TV wasn't a thing. You were outside playing soccer. Yeah. You were outside picking fruit, hanging out with your friends. I, I don't want them to lose um, to lose sense of that. You know, I don't want them to have limit with their social skills because if you're just sitting at home and watching TV and playing games, that social aspect of your development, in a sense, it gets kind. Of, it, it's dismissed in a way because you're not engaging. And how do you make sure that they are still connected to their her uh, Caribbean heritage? <laughs> oh my goodness um it, it's okay so in my my husband's Haitian I'm Guyanese so one of the things we're big on education right my husband is a podiatrist um like I mentioned I I have clinical background so education was drilled into our head but it's something that we also value because that's what you need that to kind of maneuver the world right mm -hmm. um so at home um we have various signs throughout the throughout the house that teaches them different things about their heritage. They know the flag. Um, we travel to Haiti. We have a plan to go to Guyana. Um, it, it's it's just ingrained ingrained in them. You know, we speak Creole to them. I am not uh, Creole speaking, but I have learned. Um, I've learned, and I have an interest in learning the language better to become fluent. But it's we find various ways to ingrain that. On the weekends, you come to my house, you either listen to compa or soca or reggae. <laughs> um, so it, it, our culture is very, our heritage is very important to us, and we want our children to know their heritage and know who they are. Um, if you ask them, you know, what what are you? They'll say Haitian and Guyanese. You are very much in love with your husband just like the first day he proposed to you <laughs> so before we, <laughs> before we go um i would like uh, for when he listens to this i wanted to ask you for you to give him his flowers and tell him you know how much you appreciate and love him i do i do i i love my husband dearly my husband and i met um in college and we have been rocking it since then and that is my partner in crime. You know, we have grown together, like literally grown together. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate him. I appreciate everything that he does. My husband makes it so that I don't have much to worry about. I can focus on, you know, my career. I can focus on being a wife. I can focus on being a mother. Um, you know, he, he allows me and helps me to have my time. And I do the same for him. It's really a great partnership. And I'm very appreciative of him. Very much so. I love him. I mean, I gave him four babies. Okay? <laughs> Under six. <laughs> yeah, that that's that that's a love right there. That yes. is the love right there. yes. Yes. Oh, I love and for your anniversary, you mentioned you sit down and plan for the year. Do you usually travel and what are some places you travel with them to? to? Yes, we travel. Yes. So prior to having children, we were gone. We were everywhere. So mm -hmm. now having a family is kind of figuring out ways that we like how we can maneuver being able to still do the things that we did. When we were just a couple and dating. Um, but we've gone to multiple places, Honduras, Jamaica, Mexico. We're planning to go to Paris, um, Haiti. We've been to Haiti several times. Um, we've been many places and many more to come. So both of you are the definition of are you really living? Yeah, um, you have to, you know, today, tomorrow, you can you cannot be here. And I it's really important. You know, one of the things I think that we learned with COVID and one of the things that we try to be intentional about is being intentional. Right. Mm -hmm. 
you're not just you're not just my husband because you're my husband. No, you're my person. You know, like, yeah, I'm going to pull your arm. I'm going to bug you. I'm going to do what you're my person. I can't do that with anybody else. You're my person. So I, I, I love having my person. I love having someone that, that is mine. That is, you know, not in a possessive way, but someone that is my, my anchor. I love that. I, I love being married. I love being a wife. That is amazing. I could tell and I can hear the love in your voice. And I'm looking forward uh, for the opportunity to that uh, your husband can come on the podcast and I could talk to him. Yeah. You know? yeah, I would love to. I would love to have you. So um, like I mentioned, my husband is a podiatrist. He has three practices. Um, he has two in Dade County and one here in Broward County. So if you know anyone that is seeking pediatric care, um. I can definitely provide you with the information so that you can let them know, but he's accepting new patients. Um, so yeah, it's um, National Foot Centers. National Foot Centers. I mean, you could also provide a phone number or email on here as well, if you oh, have it by heart. Perfect. Okay, so I'm going to give the number for um, all three locations, if that's okay. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, so if you're looking to make an appointment in uh, Dade County, you can call the Hialeah office, and that number is 305 Six uh six eight one twenty six hundred. That's Hialeah, and then the office that's in North Miami Beach. That's three zero five nine four seven eighty six fifty one, and then here in Tamarack nine five four nine six zero twenty one sixty eight. And then they can also be reached at info at nationalfoodcenters.com or nationalfoodcenters.com is the website. Well, the clients will be pouring in. <laughs> Good. Please come. Let them know that I sent you. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming by the podcast. You're welcome. Thank and you I, for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm looking forward for our next interview and also for me to interview your husband. I probably would love to interview both of you together. Okay, then let's make it happen. We'll definitely schedule something. <laughs> and All right. To, thank you so much. Thank you for stopping by. And to the listeners, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and share. And remember... Are you really living? Thank you.